Solve for X. X marks the spot. X factor. It may be the most mysterious letter in the English alphabet, but X is more than just a letter. X is the key quantity in algebraic equations. The X axis is the horizontal line in a coordinate plane. X is the multiplier. X is the outlier. X is the crossroads of what came before and the cutting edge of what comes next. It's the common denominator, the uncommon quality in those who made their mark, those who leave a legacy. X is the anointing. The difference between the best you can do and the best God can do. The difference between possible and impossible. The difference between natural and supernatural. You are called out, consecrated, created. For such a time as this, for such a place as this, it's a new anointing for a new season. X. Thank you so much. Thank you for that amazing welcome, Pastor Mark, and to all of you here at the church. What a blessing to be with you this morning, and what an extraordinary series that you guys as a church are embarking on this sense of God is moving in the world. God is anointing people for different tasks and breakthrough moments, and he's here with us today. I don't know how God first came into your life or the life of your family, but for my family, it began quite a while ago. My father was born um, during the Second World War in Germany. My grandfather was uh, a brilliant scientist, and after the war, the Soviet occupation came through, and my family were living under Soviet occupation. My grandfather realized that all the scientists were moving to were being moved to Siberia and he thought I don't want to live in Siberia so he made contact with um, British Secret Service and was able to arrange for a small plane to come and collect the family they it landed on a, a sort of strip of grass quite near where they were living and one day my dad as a child with his sister parents grandparents went out of the house they left everything they had everyone they knew and they walked out and um, got on this flight and arrived in Britain in 1948 in just what they were standing up in now my grandfather was such a committed atheist partly because of what he'd experienced in the war, partly because of the worldview that underpinned a lot of science at that point. He was such a committed atheist that he forbade anyone from mentioning God or having a Bible in the house. So my father grew up in that context. He went on to become an academic himself. He had various posts in different universities around the world. And he got to his mid-30s and he'd married a wonderful woman and had two fantastic children. And they were living the dream life. You know, they had lovely time by the beach, intellectually fulfilling career. But he began to think, there's one question that actually worries me a bit when I ask it. And the question was, when I get to 65 and I retire and I look back on my life, will this be enough? And that question concerned him. One day, a, a, a friend, a colleague at the university invited him to come and hear a visiting lecturer who was giving a talk at lunchtime. 
And this visiting lecturer was giving a speech about an event in history. And the event in history was the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth and the subsequent claim that three days later, his tomb was found empty. A public miracle in history. Now, my father went to hear this and he thought, this guy who's giving this message, I've never heard anything like this, but he's making a category mistake. He's putting two things together that don't belong together. He's putting religion and faith and resurrections and stuff like that, and he's putting it together with truth and evidence. Those things don't belong together. But he left that lunchtime meeting a little bit more worried. A few weeks later, he was at home marking some exam papers. My sister and I were asleep. My mother was up in, her, in their bedroom asleep as well. And the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him. My father had an extended vision. He saw his whole life flash before him. And he saw the reaction on the face of Jesus to the way that he'd lived, the things he'd said and done. He had what Christians might call a sense of conviction of sin, his need for a saviour. So at the end of this vision, he sees Christ on the cross and he finds himself on his knees and he thinks... I need to say something to Jesus, but I don't know how to pray. I've never been taught how to pray. So he said to Jesus, give me the words. And these are the words that came out of his mouth. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It was a few days later after he'd gone to a shop to literally buy his first ever Bible that he read those words in the gospel, in the mouth of the centurion who said those words to Jesus. As a result of that experience, um, I mean, my mother took about six months to, to become a Christian. She was quite annoyed when her husband had a, a conversion experience. And um, my dad sort of said to her, listen, I, I want to find other people who know Jesus. I wonder where I could find them. And then they thought, maybe church. And uh, my, my mum said she, th she knew her husband was intelligent. So she said, listen, I'll come to church with you, but only if it's Anglican thinking once he's experienced that, he'll be cured for life. <laughs> he'll be fine. So they happen to be in Sydney, where the Anglican churches do actually believe in the Bible, and um, the rest is history. As a result of that encounter with the risen Jesus, the whole trajectory of our family's life changed. My dad went from being a professional academic and turned into a church-planting evangelist. And that's how I met Jesus myself, seeing the change in him, seeing the change in others who came to know Jesus through that ministry. How did you first come to know God? How did God come into your life? Well, today we're thinking about anointing. We're thinking about um, what it means to be anointed. And in your series of biblical characters, today we're thinking about a really significant biblical character a woman called Mary. You could argue Mary is the Christian faith's most significant female witness. And we first encounter Mary as a young teenager. Now, for many of us, um, if you've been brought up in a kind of um, not a Catholic version of the Christian faith, when you hear the name Mary, you might slightly flinch. You might think, be careful, don't end up worshipping her. 
You know, you might be thinking, let's, let's steer a little bit clear. For some of us, Mary is a sort of remote figure, an otherworldly figure with a faint glimmer of a smile and a sort of cherubic baby on her hip. For others, she's the unattainable idea of the perfect mother. And that puts us off for various reasons. For others, she's a sort of ideal of unattainable purity. But whoever we are, for most of us, Mary is a sort of distant figure, certainly in our technological age. And even in the retelling of the story of the birth of Jesus, perhaps, I don't know if you do this here in America, but in Britain, we often sort of reenact the nativity. So we might have, you know, the, the, the baby and the manger and the donkey and the sort of different animals around and shepherds and things. And children will do this as a school play. I once played Mary in my school play and for over an hour, I didn't say a word. <laughs> Mary is a mute figure who doesn't speak, who's just static, who's perpetually captured in actually a very short period of her life, which was when she had a small baby, and she's sort of stuck hanging there, and we don't really think much more about her. Yet, Mary is described in Luke's Gospel as a woman who exercised choice, who questioned things, who reflected, who responded, who spoke up, and who demonstrated great faith. Mary had a voice Mary was anointed at her time in history. Now I can remember exactly where I was when I first realized and was really struck by Mary's voice. I had been supporting a, an individual who was giving witness testimony in a criminal trial. The trial was, um, this is a slight trigger warning here, the trial was um, to do with historic child abuse. And the perpetrator had been someone who was very powerful. And the trial was happening and different people were giving testimony about the horrors that they had endured at this particular gentleman's hands. And they were, of course, being cross-examined. And there was one particular day of the trial that was very, very difficult for the witnesses. And at the end of this day, I was so discouraged and so traumatized myself, I was asking, God, where are you in the midst of this? And I went, we were in a big city in Britain, and I went out of the court, and I walked to the cathedral, you know, large historic church building. I thought, I'm just going to sit in the cathedral and pray. And it happened to be that even song was happening. That's a, a sort of old service that happens every evening. And um, I just took the notice sheet and sat in the pew, and at some point, the choir got up to sing a piece, and the congregation weren't involved. We were just there to listen, and they were singing this beautiful piece of music, and I, I began to, to hear some of the words, and I looked at the service sheet, and they were singing the Magnificat, and that's the song that Mary sang after and the angel Gabriel spoke to her about having the child. And there was one phrase that the choir sang, and they sang this. He hath brought the rulers down from their thrones, and he will exalt them of low degree. In that moment, it sort of hit me between the eyes. God spoke to me. Mary saw and knew 
that what Jesus was coming into this world to do was to tear down from thrones those who oppress and violate, those who are perpetrators of injustice, and to exalt those of low degree. I realized in that moment that I'd seen many images of Mary, but I'd never listened to her voice. So we're going to think about Mary's X factor, Mary's anointing, and what it might mean for us, what, what we can learn from how she walked and moved in the anointing on her life. And the first thing I want to share is that Mary is the fulfiller of prophecy. And anointing and prophecy go very closely to, hand in hand together. Now, Mary was a Jewish woman. She would have been steeped in the Old Testament scriptures from childhood. She may well have known the prophecy of Isaiah, given a few hundred years before her life. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So it had been prophesied long ago that at some point in history, a woman, a young woman, a virgin would be chosen by God and through that woman, somebody who would be God with us in history would be born. As I prophesied it. And Mary may well have known those words of the prophet Isaiah. I think she certainly would have known the words of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 where humanity's foremother Eve, after the fall, after eating the fruit, Eve is hearing from God what the consequences of sin in the world are going to be. And in the midst of that, she hears this extraordinary promise. She hears, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As God speaks to the power of evil, the serpent, the first messianic promise of the Bible is given to a woman about a woman. Now, you know, um, even in, in our cultures today, often women who get married will take their husband's surname and their children will take the father's surname, etc. The seed, the family line is through the male, right? That's, that's just what we're familiar with. And that was certainly true in the ancient world. So here is a promise saying there will be a woman's seed. There won't be a biological male involved in the conception of the one who will crush the power of evil in this world. So Mary... When she hears from the angel Gabriel, you're going to have a child, you're going to give birth to a son, is the fulfiller of prophecy. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear a prophetic word, I want it to happen immediately. It's quite annoying, isn't it, when things take time? And actually, it can be tremendously discouraging when we live in that tension of the now and not yet. We're hoping and longing for that word that God has given us or that word that God has given someone we care about and we're just not seeing it. Mary lived the fulfillment of a long ago given prophecy 
And I want to encourage you today. Sometimes in the Western church, we feel, you know, anointing must be immediate. And if it's not immediate, maybe I'm not blessed. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I've sinned. Maybe I shouldn't trust God anymore. And if you are in a position of waiting for the fulfillment of prophecy, hold on. Hold on. Secondly, Mary understood reality and was prepared to pay a cost. Consider for a moment what life would have been like for a young woman living in an insignificant district of a nation under occupation of the world's most powerful empire, who spoke a different language, imposed taxation, and oppressed the people they had occupied. Now contemplate what it would have been like to be a young woman in a very patriarchal society. The rabbinic literature of the first century gives us an insight into just how women were regarded and viewed. It's not how the Old Testament or actually how Jesus viewed um, women or how the New Testament does. But at that point in history, she lived under the oppression of patriarchy. And then think, a woman's voice meant very little. In fact, if there was a court trial happening and you had a female witness to the events, her words were not in any way regarded as weighty. They didn't have the same worth as a male witness giving testimony. That's the context. In that context, Mary, who was a young teenager, probably 13, 14, receives this extraordinary message from an angelic visitor. She's a virgin. She's betrothed to a young guy, her boyfriend, Joseph. They haven't slept together yet. And the angel Gabriel tells her that she is highly favored and that the Lord is with her. Now, I don't know about you, but that might, I, I would have found that quite hard to hear. It doesn't feel like I'm favored or God is with me. I don't know how much you guys are following um, what's happening in Ukraine. Obviously, there's massive conflicts happening around the world. We need to be praying, people of God, about what's happening. But with the war in Ukraine, in Britain, we welcomed, um, and the churches in particular, welcomed people fleeing the war, and particularly um, women and children fleeing the war. And my husband and I had, for a year, um, living at our farm, two Ukrainian ladies one lady in her 80s and her daughter in her 60s. These two women had experienced the occupation of their place. And I don't need to tell you what that means, an occupying army coming in, and what, what happens to women in that, in that kind of context. And they, they had fled, and they were only allowed to bring a small bag enough to just put on their knees so they could get into a bus to escape. To live under occupation, Mary, you're highly favored. God's with you. How do we regard the favor of God? Do we think, if I'm experiencing the favor of God, I must be experiencing material blessing, happiness, relational harmony, everything I've ever wanted. And if I haven't got that, I, I can't hear that God's, God's blessing is on me. Mary 
in that situation of great oppression and difficulty, hears the word of God as truth. She's highly favoured. She's told that not only is she going to miraculously have a child who will be the son of the Most High, but the child she's going to have will sit on David's throne. Now that's a reference to the messianic promises that this child will be the Messiah in the Davidic line. But just in case Mary makes the mistake of thinking the idea is going to be that Jesus becomes a sort of civil leader, a political leader for a specific point in history, you know, and reestablishes the nation state and overthrows the Roman Empire, that Gabriel says he'll sit on David's throne and he will reign forever. So this is God being born in history, the one who will be God's son here on earth, whose kingdom will never end. The heart of the incarnation is captured in these words to Mary. Her son, who will be born from her womb, her seed, her egg, who will be carried and delivered from her body, will be such a great king that his kingdom will be eternal. And in the presence of that king, the trials and difficulties of this material world will kind of fade. In the presence of the one who is God with us. Now Luke reflects and records that Mary was worried when she heard this. I think that's probably a slight understatement. She was troubled and afraid. A reaction that rings true. And her question reflects her intelligence. She says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? In other words, she understands how babies are made. (laughs) She's not, you know, sometimes people think the Bible is a sort of religious literature where you get in the bubble and everything is just like, we're in the Bible now, guys, so yeah, obviously, it's fine. (laughs) No, she asks the question. And she knows, she knows in her cultural moment there will be great cost to be a woman who has a child when she's unmarried. How will it be? She doesn't say, no, I don't want it to happen. She's interested. How? How can this happen? And then when she receives the answer from Gabriel, she, she says, yeah, may it be, may your word to me be fulfilled. I am the Lord's servant. Her reply shows us she believes this is going to come to pass. Her fear is natural and it's acknowledged. The loss and the cost are natural and they are acknowledged. And in that context of reality of what the cost is going to be, what the loss is going to be, how hard this is going to be, she says, yes, God, may your word to me be fulfilled. Now, I think that says something really powerful about anointing. What does it mean to be a person who carries the anointing of God? It is not without cost, people. It is not without cost. All over the world today, people are responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ and are prepared to pay a cost. Understand that there will be a cost. 
I experienced this really powerfully in um, 1996 as a student, as a university student, involved in world missions, involved in prayer meetings for world missions. A group of us at Oxford felt God was calling us to go when the Taliban took power over three quarters of Afghanistan. This is before 9-11. They were this very unknown sort of minor crazy little cultic group who were um, forbidding women from being educated and everything we now know about the Taliban. And we felt God lay on our hearts to go on an intercession trip and pray for that nation. Our friend ran um, the student newspaper for Oxford and we realised the only way you could get in because of the war was if you were journalists. And so he wrote us a piece of paper saying we were the Afghanistan correspondents of his newspaper. And that is how we got that's how we got journalist visas. The night before we left, I had a dream. And in that dream, I saw the three of us giving Bibles to the Taliban. So I shared this encouraging dream on the morning of our flight with the team. And they felt this was God. Okay, maybe we're not meant to just go as intercession. We're smuggling Bibles too. And, and they said yes. So we went on the morning of our flight. We were flying from Heathrow. And there's a place in London you could just go and get the Bible. In any language the Bible has been translated into. And crucially, as we were students, you could get it for free. So we went and we got 40 New Testaments. And we got four full copies of the Bible. And we filled our rucksacks. And off we went. We flew into the neighboring country. That was a, a, another ordeal. Anyway, we got through to the border, to the checkpoint. And the Taliban are there and they say, we need to check your luggage. And we thought, oh dear, Lord, please help. And they began checking in our rucksacks. There was one t-shirt on top of mine with just Bibles. And they didn't see the Bibles. We don't know whether they thought, these Westerners take a lot of books on holiday, or God just blinded their eyes. Um, a couple of days later, we were invited in to the military headquarters of the Taliban. And the city that we were at um, was hosting the top brass of the movement. And we met the education minister, the religion minister, and the foreign minister. I wasn't allowed to speak as a woman, which was a hardship for me, as you can probably tell. And, um, but I took all the notes and held the Bibles in my bag. At the end of the meeting, one of the teams said, we've bought you the most precious gift we believe one human being can give another. Amen. And the other person on the team said, it's the Holy Bible. And we all looked at the guy with the Kalashnikov and thought, don't shoot. The keeper of the Holy Quran, the religion minister, took hold of the Bible and he said this. He said, I know exactly what this book is. I've been praying to Allah for years that I could read the Bible. Amen. Thank you for answering my prayer and bringing me a Bible. Yeah. Praise God. Woo! There's a cost sometimes to anointing, right? Thirdly, Mary used her voice quickly. Mary is a witness. Mary is a witness to all that she experienced. 
Now, um, as I was researching for the book, Mary's Voice, I, I discovered that Mary is actually the primary witness for Luke's gospel. You know, the beginning of Luke's gospel, he, he talks about how he's carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and he's spoken to the eyewitnesses, and one of those was Mary. And Luke is careful to include Mary's detailed account of her experiences and observations in his gospel. And what that means is that when we hold the New Testament in our hands, we hold something really significant just in historical and literary terms. Because we hold the testimony of a first century woman. People often think history is the victor's history. People sometimes think history is just the male perspective, right? In the New Testament, we have the witness testimony of this ordinary woman. Even if you weren't a Christian, even if you didn't believe what she said, that would be extraordinary. There's no other equivalent literature of the time, either Greco-Roman or rabbinic. But we don't just have Mary's perspective or her eyewitness testimony. We actually also have her words. This critical phrase in Luke 1 verse 46 and Mary said. Sometimes we skirt over, don't we, small little phrases in the Bible. That is unbelievably significant. And Mary said. The words of her song, the Magnificat that follow, form the longest speech of any woman in the New Testament. And it's clear from the format that Mary's words are following a long-established pattern of prophecy. And she's drawing on Old Testament themes as she sings and proclaims. The Magnificat goes on to form the basis of Christian ethical teaching. If you go to philosophy departments and you ask a question about Christian ethics around the world, this Magnificat is key in the formation of Christian ethics. The teenage Mary is filled with the Holy Spirit and she is anointed to speak and her words go on to be part of scripture. Later on in Luke's gospel, the author of the book of Acts, sorry, Luke Acts is often seen as one thing, notes that Mary was present at Pentecost. And when the flames of the Holy Spirit descended, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is named as one of his disciples, who is anointed again by the power of the Spirit at Pentecost. And um, John's gospel identifies Mary as having an important voice in Jesus' ministry. In chapter 2 of John's gospel, verse 5, at the wedding of Cana, you know, they're all running around, the wine has run out, everybody's worried, and Mary just says to everybody, just do what he says, just do whatever he tells you, he'll sort it out. That a woman could speak and her words are recorded for us is meaningful. This is weighty in the scriptures, and it seems to me that as Christians we gloss over this. I think this has enormous evangelistic importance. I meet people all over the world who say, the Bible's sexist, not interested. The Bible's been used to keep women down, not interested. And Mary said. Her words are recorded for us. She's the primary witness to the incarnation of God in history. 
she goes on to be one of the primary witnesses to the crucifixion. The gospel accounts tell us the male disciples deserted Jesus. Sorry, men in the house. Apart from John, who stood far off, it's the women who were there. And the women were first at the empty tomb. Now, if you were making up a story about God entering human history, dying a sacrificial death and then being raised from the dead, and you wanted people to convert to your story on the basis of it actually being true, you would never position women in this way in the narrative. Because women weren't witnesses. They couldn't be in a court of law. So this is actually evidence that the gospel accounts are true. And Mary said, Mary shows us the anointing, what it looks like, and what it looks like is witness to Jesus. This is not about her. It's not about women's rights or anything like that. Mary's words and witness point to Jesus. And that's what he anoints us to do too, to be witnesses in his world to point to him. Fourthly and briefly, Mary knew the scriptures. Mary lived at a time when her people were subjected to empire and the arrogance of empire. And in her Magnificat, she quotes, she quotes from Psalm 2, verse 1. She quotes from 1 Samuel 2, verse 3. She quotes and quotes and quotes the Old Testament to speak of her hope that God will bring the rulers down from their thrones that God will humble the arrogance of the proud and that he will lift up the humble. Now, as we read Mary's words of prophecy today, our own relative positions of edu- of, in education and privilege and wealth and opportunity make it difficult to see how Mary's promise that Jesus is going to bring judgment, Jesus is bringing a reckoning against injustice, it can feel difficult to see why that's good. Because we're so privileged. Perhaps we are the ruler on the throne. We may struggle to see the goodness and the liberty of Mary's words, but read the Magnificat to a survivor of sexual abuse. Read the Magnificat to someone who has endured years of racism. Read the Magnificat to a person who's experienced domestic violence and a bully in the home. Read the Magnificat to someone who is oppressed by a boss who's an absolute nightmare to deal with at work. And the words thrill your heart with hope that there is hope for goodness, beauty, and truth, and that one day Jesus will set things right. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian who was executed by the Nazis for his part in the plot on Hitler's life. He was caught between loyalty to his country, Germany, and the need to resist the evil that had overtaken his country. And as a young pastor, he used to host university students in his home and do what he called table talk. And actually, my atheist grandfather went to the Bonhoeffer home to that table talk to debate him. 
Bonhoeffer resisted the power structures of Nazism, and this is what he said about Mary's Magnificat. He called it the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say, the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. To the lowly, to the oppressed, to the abused, to the vulnerable, to the powerless, Mary's song is a cry of hope. I want to encourage you, people of God, that the anointing of the Holy Spirit looks like bringing justice in this world. It looks like caring about the oppression structures of this world. It looks like seeing the Lord Jesus bring his goodness, beauty, and truth into the darkness of this world. And that's the last point, which I don't have time to to do. Mary read the power discourses of this world, and she defiantly believed Jesus is the hope for humanity. I wonder if in this city sometimes you feel hopeless. The political shenanigans that go on. The kind of division in culture. We have it in Britain as well. A sense of lament and hopelessness about how power is being used and abused in our time. Any of us who feel that lament can hear the words of the Magnificat and maybe our hearts might thrill with hope again. He will bring down the rulers from their thrones and exalt them of low degree. Mary points us to a God who can be trusted with power. In a world where power harms and hurts so many of us, we will not always live subjected to unjust power. That's what anointing looks like. In the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus, the only one to be present to comfort Jesus at his birth and at his death. Chosen to play this extraordinary role of witness. This is what it looks like. This is what anointing looks like. To see prophecy fulfilled. And if you're in a waiting season, to hold on and not lose heart. To understand reality and be prepared to pay a cost. Anointing not as fantasy, but as God's word and life in this world where it's sometimes going to be costly and hard. To use our voices as a witness. And Mary said, unlock those vocal cords, people of God. Let's begin to speak up again as witnesses. To know the scriptures. And to understand the power discourses of our day and defy them with the hope of the gospel. Amen. Praise God.